Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the On Topic podcast with your host, Jason Kim. And today's topic, I decided to do something a little different. Um, I thought that in between recording seasons, I might as well do the singles episode where I just release a single episode <laughs> and discuss a topic that was preoccupying my mind throughout the week or day or what have you. So today I thought I'd try something a little different and do it, do a book review. And today's book review or today's book that I want to talk about, it was something that was uh, that was on the Joe Rogan podcast. The author went on and they talked about the book and so on and so forth. And that book being Empire of the Summer Moon by S.C. Gwynn. I've just finished reading it and it's a really good book. Uh, I I loved it. I love reading hi- about history. Uh, I find indigenous history fascinating. And this book kind of has it all and it's told through an objective way as objective as it could be because he the, the author makes his biases known and he's very i guess he is self-aware that he is he says it outright it was like this guy was was an idiot this person was an idiot that person was an idiot you know and this guy wasn't racist and this guy was a bigot like he'll call him out but it's it's you know and when he when the author does that it's it's obvious it comes from a place of extensive research where he knows who these people are almost you know and before you read this book i do suggest listening to the podcast with joe rogan uh joe rogan with sc Gwynn. and in that podcast is only about an hour an hour and 15 and they highlight or summarize some of the you know the highlights of the book and why it's worth reading there's it's drenched in not just indigenous comanche history but it's also a part of Spanish-American history, Mexican history, Texas history, overall uh, American history. And it also demonstrates sort of the, the mastery of the mastery that these indigenous people have over horses. You know, they the whole book is really about the horses. It's more about horses than it is about the Comanche because the Comanche power comes from the horses. And the book does a fantastic job at explaining what exactly that means their entire economic system the entire culture revolves around horse and they've only had horses within their culture within like three four hundred years that's relatively very brief for society to readapt and just almost 180 completely change uh an entire culture that revolves around horse you know and i only say this because se Gwyn does discuss the history of the comanche where they came from and he briefly says basically that they descended from the mountains and it came into the plains and it's relatively unclear as to why that happened this is like long 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 time ago uh, but what they do know based on the oral tradition and some archaeological evidence is that they descended from the mountains came to the prairies then that's i guess 100 200, 200 years later they come across the spanish and the spanish brought their horses and uh, long story short, the Comanches got their hand on horses because they either stole them or some horses broke out, whatever. And as a horse spread throughout the prairies, uh, throughout the American Southwest and to the American Midwest, all these indigenous people that lived on the prairies started using horses and they started getting really good. And, you know, these are people who spent their entire lives living on the prairies. So when you have someone who only sees flatness and vast land and you have something like a horse that comes around... You know, it must be like it's a match made in heaven. They're like, you know, long lost cousins or long lost siblings reconnected. That's what it seemed like. That's how the way he kind of 
explains the relationship between horses and the indigenous people uh, and the relationship with horses. It's like long lost cousins that finally, uh, long lost cousins that finally connected. Uh, not lust. That would have been, that would be awkward. <laughs> um, but you can find his book on Amazon. It's like 24 bucks, uh, really affordable. And on Kindle, it's about 15. I like to buy physical copies of books. It's just, you know, I like to read off paper. I don't like reading off screens. It you know kind of hurts my eyes a little bit. It helps, and I lose focus when I read too much on screen. So book is good. And the one thing I did notice about this book, the way a, a Seguin formats or writes this book is very similar to how people would often write about... Um, how can I say important cultural figures, if you will, because usually what important cultural figures and why they're so important, you have to give a pretext or like a context of where they came out of. Why is their existence so significant of that time? So if you want to do that, you need to explain the culture, the history, how people were thinking, what were the priorities of the time. And Quana, Quana Parker, him being the last, the first and last paramount chief of all comanches I, I forget what term they use but he was like the boss of bosses i guess and of all comanches but that was sort of a position given onto him by the government but also a lot had to do with his charisma and leadership that that made him rise above his peers into the leadership role because there were other uh comanches vying for leadership and he was the one that sort of reigned supreme but what had made his story interesting is that they only really Gwyn only really talks about Kwana towards the end of the book. Like, toward, yeah, towards the latter half of the book, rather. The last three, four chapters, it's almost exclusively about Kwana, almost. And then the last, then the few chapters before, Kwana's mentioned, and he is sort of aloof. He's, like, out and about in the prairies running away. And you talk more about the uh, American side as to how they are going to deal with someone like Kwana, a renegade Comanche who refuses to live in the reservations, will continue to fight for, you know, the right to be, to live as Comanches and do what they wanted. Although, although this is where it gets interesting. It's, their way of life is, in today's standards, the way we would see it, we'd see it as barbaric or ultra-violent and scary. But, you know, for them, it's like, this is freedom. This is what we do. Um, you can get to this, you can get into the, all these philosophical, moral debates, but... It's kind of pointless to have these moral debates if you're if you're not self-aware of your own source of your own morality because all of our morality is sourced in something and and those and those things often tend to be subjective and you see the crossroads of that that the Comanche believed that their way of life was was the best pure freedom out in the prairies do what you want you know it's 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 an ocean of grass nothing could stop you you can't hide from anything you know, they lived in the moment because they understood that life could be taken away from them at any moment. Whereas the civilized industrial East thinks that, you know, stability through farming, cultivation, uh, making food, living a sedentary life where you can go to church and just be a better person and and be a greater member to society, to a sedentary society. That's what they wanted on the Comanches. But you could see that this is black and white. They're two separate, completely separate lifestyles, how... And how they came to terms and compromises is something that I think is worth reading because Kwana sort of brokers a, a compromise with, uh, with the American government. But why is Kwana so important? The, f- the first half of the book, it's more about 
his family history and about the Comanche people and the tradition, where they're from, and why all of this informs Kwana as a person. His mother is a white American settler from Pennsylvania that settled in Texas with her family. And her family were, Im- um, I don't want to say immediately, but in the book, it's like immediately they were killed off in the book. <laughs> like it's, it's, uh, I think the first major incident he talks about on the frontier is, you know, this the Parker family from Pennsylvania. They settled in Texas on uh, Comanche land and the Comanche are seeing this encroachment of white settlers and they're like, uh, hold the phone, what's happening? And the Parkers being from the east and relatively naive and ignorant to indigenous people of the prairies and their method of warfare and their culture swooped in killed all the men uh, a lot of women were killed as well uh, a lot of women were taken as captive and also uh, raped and a lot of children were kidnapped as well but the reasoning behind this as Gwyn explains is that there's a low fertility rate among the Comanches so for them to bring in people who can replenish that population human population stock uh Raiding was was significant. Uh, raiding for horses, sometimes for cattle, or um, raiding people, really, and and whatever things they may have, and also to send a message to to the you know U.S. government saying, hey, you're you know you're crossing the line here, literally crossing the line, and that's where the conflict happens. And it was through the battles of tech of Texas as a country, uh, Texas fighting the Comanches is what gave birth to the famous Texas Rangers because they imitated how the Comanches fought and they thought, you know, we can't keep fighting like white people. We need to fight like them in order to beat them. And that's pretty much what happened. And the book explains all of this history in great, vast detail. And it's great. But I'm... This is my apology. I'm also kind of thinking off the cuff. But what makes this story fascinating, fascinating as... As I just explained about you know kids being kidnapped, is that one of those kids that were kidnapped was Kwana's mother, and the book spends a good deal talking about her experience, what it was like being raised as a, you know, as a white girl, I guess, and then being kidnapped onto it, being kidnapped by Comanches and living your life, your adult life, your complete adult life as a Comanche. That you see a white woman, but inside that's just a Comanche woman who doesn't speak English, only spoke the indigenous language. And that's what makes her life so fascinating because when she was quote-unquote rescued because her husband, who was a war chief, was defeated, uh, she was brought back to civilization with her newborn baby, uh, Prairie Flower. Her, yeah, her, newborn, her baby was named Prairie Flower, which is Kwana's uh, younger sister. And when she went back to civilization, she was constantly trying to escape out into the prairies, trying to rejoin her son, trying to rejoin the Comanches out onto the prairies. And she never really did. Uh, she escaped once, lived out there, then she was captured again. And she constantly tried breaking out and she refused to learn English. She refused to go to church. She refused to live in a house for a while. She actually lived in a teepee in the, like, in the backyard or something like that. And, and, I'm, and this brings me back to the podcast because they talk about her a lot and and, and how the Comanches understood freedom. And then S.C. Gwen was sympathetic to them. He said, here's a woman who grew up, who's grown up in civilization and lived the Comanches' entire life, and then she's brought back, and she refuses to stay, and she wants to be out there, you know, in, in an environment where 
or is extreme because there's no protection. You're out there. You're exposed. You know, the sun's brutal. Not a lot of water sources. Wind gets, you know, wind hits hard. Snows harder. And they're just bison roaming around. And she wants, she'd rather be out there than in the city. And Essie Gwynn and Joe Rogan, they were going back and forth and talking about what is, you know, freedom. The taste of real freedom. And how once you've tasted that, you never want to go back. And, that, you know, that got me started. I was like, that's a really, I'm very, I'm very fascinated by that topic as well. Freedom, physical freedom, just being out there, do whatever you want. And the book captures that. The book does a very good job of capturing their lifestyle, saying these guys are constantly on the go. And it was an ecosystem that worked for them. Whether you find what they do appalling and disturbing, that's fine. I mean, that's an innate human reaction. But also understand that this was their life and that's how they lived it. And that's why I find it fascinating because it's so foreign. It's so different. You know, constantly on the move, warfare is a normal thing. The way they fought, uh, oh yeah, the way they fought is another thing. That's an, That in of itself, their military tactics and technique is worth reading on its own. It's incredibly impressive the way they mastered a horse in a very short period of time. You know, he I think he said that the horses were introduced to them in the 14, 1500s. By the 1800s, um, no one could match their horsemanship. No one, no other indigenous group matched the Comanche's uh horse riding ability according to this book um like one example is they they're able to do like these weird drive-by techniques on horses that that's how i can explain it is they're riding a horse one guy's riding a horse and this Comanche has the ability to shoot three arrows in quick succession so one two three so you you just release three arrows and as he's riding the horse in full gallop the warrior is able to get himself onto one side of the horse while riding it and by getting onto one side of the horse, having his body lean towards one side completely, the other side of the horse is protecting the rider's body. So as he's riding, let's say he's leaning off to the right side of the horse. As he's leaning off, he can now take his bow and start shooting it underneath the neck and the, the chin of the horse in that space. So they could release those three arrows, one, two, three, underneath the neck of the horse leaving very little contact surface for anyone to land a shot on that indigenous rider. But he has full sight of you, and he can control the horse and ride around you, and you get shot. And he has armor, which is his horse. His horse is protecting him. And if the horse dies, that's too bad. He can, He's now on foot in good fight. And in the book, he does mention that they were far better on horse. Once they're on foot, they accepted the fact that they were going to die, and they were going to die till the end, which is, like, very Spartan, I guess, but crazy. What a lifestyle. Um, and one techniques. And and again, back in the podcast, there's, on that podcast episode, they're talking about archery techniques. And Joe Rogan mentions this guy who was able to kind of replicate those techniques. Which is, you know, it's, it's always fascinating to watch. But all that to say, I, I, do, I do suggest this book, Empire of the Summer Moon. And there's a lot of interesting facts that the, he drops as well. Like these little, uh, I want to say, maybe a gem of information, if you will. Uh, for example... The reason why it's called Empire of the Summer Moon because the Comanches, one of their favorite things to do was to raid during a, a full moon in the summer because there's so much light that would come from the moon. And that just gave them the advantage. It was easy for them to raid because they use uh, the moonlight. And apparently it got to a point where other indigenous people knew not to travel 
or not to be too exposed on the prairies during the summer moon because they knew that that's when the Comanches like to attack. And if they were, they were prepared and hope for sun, hope for the sunrise. But another cool fact was, um, if you know the song, obviously everyone knows the song "Buffalo Soldier" by Bob Marley. The book kind of towards the end it just drops a, an information as to where that comes from, the etymology of Buffalo Soldier, and that was uh, indigenous people of the prairies. The first time they saw black soldiers, that's what they called them, Buffalo Soldiers. They never seen black people before, or very seldomly have, and. Once they saw them, they they noticed their hair. They're like the hair is like you know buffalo fur, so we they call them buffalo soldier. Great book. <laughs> that I ran out of superlatives. I think I'm dragging this on now, but I would suggest that in this new lockdown, that if you want something to read, read Empire of the Summer Moon. It reads great. It builds up a lot of great historical context leading up to Quana, so you understand what it really means to be Comanche or the idea of what it means to be Comanche for the Comanches. At the t- by the time you get to Quana, so you become empathetic but also sympathetic of his cause and where he comes from. And uh, I I heard according to the podcast they're trying to get this into a movie deal. I really hope so because I could totally see this into a movie. This is really well written, very fascinating. Thank God I don't live at those times and at that place because that I would have died. I would I would have got scalped easily. So again, thank you for listening. Uh, today's episode was a little different. It's on. Uh, the book Empire of the Summer Moon by S.C. Gwynn. I do suggest you listen to the podcast episode with Joe Rogan before. Uh, if you have a Kindle, it's available on Kindle. If you like reading and owning a physical book, I do suggest buying the book itself. There are pictures in the middle. So that's good. I like pictures. Uh, and the pictures also give you a better idea, especially if you've never been to Texas, that part of the world. I've never been. So though the pictures really did help give me an idea of what that world looked like physically. So again, uh, thank you for listening. Uh, make sure to follow and subscribe uh, to the On Topic podcast. And um, again, thanks for listening. My name's Jason Kim from Montreal. Thank you.